welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Father John and Deacon Jake. And we are back with uh, our most recent installment here, uh, which the title is unknown, the topic is unknown, uh, the th- even the themes are largely unknown, so we're going to see where this goes. But we have a couple <laughs> things to kind of catch up everybody on first. Uh, first off, six weeks into your final year of seminary. Yeah. How are things going? Um, they are full. My my semester is full and keeps getting more full. I just picked up a wedding uh, end of October, them assisting the the priest who was preparing them. I uh, wasn't able to make the wedding. It's an interesting situation, so I'll be doing the, the wedding rite outside of a mass as a deacon. Um, so that's just some more. I got some paperwork and stuff to do for that. Oh, yeah. Um, delegation from pastor, things like that. So it's um, it's fun. I'm entering into the, the world of the chancery church bishop's office. Yeah, you're in the uh, boiler room of the ship. <laughs> it's, so that's fun. Yeah, um, yeah classes uh, Tuesday through Friday, heading to the parish, uh, particularly Saturdays are kind of the full day. In my parish, baptisms, quinceaneras. Friday, 10 a.m. class is probably the highlight of your week, I'm sure. <laughs> absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. Well, I've read half of your book now, so I feel like I've taken the class already. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Still need to get a, a signature from the author. There um, you go. Um, I'm really enjoying Mariology with the deacons, but it's a tough year. Uh, so if you're not familiar with seminary life, everything kind of coalesces in the end uh, in the last year where you're, you've been ordained, you're in the parish, and the parish is just fired up and ready to go because they got they got this new guy with all this energy and you can serve these pastors uh but then you also have full academic work it's actually kind of hitting the 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 heights of it um with a thesis and these things plus your mode yeah and then you're kind of leading the whole seminary and running your houses so it's 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 a lot. Yeah, I told somebody, I've been telling the guys that I feel like I'm living four different lives, but yeah. not in a duplicitous way. Right. Um, but it's, I mean, between seminary life, which actually honestly kind of feels a little different between seminary house life versus seminary school life. Those are kind of two separate right. arenas. Right. And then you have the parish, and then you've got kind of your own private, personal, friends, family uh, schedule. And then we've got the companions. So it's just like all these things overlap every day in some capacity, yeah. but like I'm, I've got a 15 minute drive between totally different worlds. Yeah. Uh, constantly. Yeah. No. So, yeah. It's, it's true. So when the guys see me napping in the library, um, for the first time ever, it's actually cause I'm pretty wrecked and tired. Yeah. <laughs> Not bo- just cause I have a Chadia and close. I was reading a, a description of a Chadia. Maybe that's a whole other podcast, but, uh, when I, I think it was from Evagrius, was describing Achadia, and he said, the Achadia for the monk looks as if uh, the monk will stand up from his book, look out the window, be distracted by any sound he can hear, uh, listening for any voices outside of his cell. Then he'll sit back down, look at the book, get distracted, turn to the end of the book, read the last few pages, figure out how many... Uh, how long it'll take him to complete the rest of the book. Then he'll start complaining about the font and the formatting. Exactly. He will finally close the book and lay his head upon it. And fall into a restless slumber. <laughs> yes. Sounds I said, like oh, oh, that's most of my seminary. Oh. Yeah, it sounds like doing a doctorate. Um, well, you're getting there. You're getting there. Uh, I am happy to report that yesterday, Father Sean and I, you might not even know this. I saw it on Strava. Successfully finished the 14ers. 
So you guys got snowed out when you were trying to go. We back. got snowed out a couple weeks ago. We got up there yesterday. It started snowing at five in the morning when we started the climb. <laughs> and uh, but the guardian angels got us to the top. Peace, the guardian angels. On this was Mount the of the Holy Cross. Mount of the Holy Cross, which Father Sean finished summiting all the fourteeners, and I finished saying mass on all the fourteeners, which is something I've been doing for thirteen years. Wow, I've said sixty-four masses on fourteeners, one hundred twenty summits, and it was something we've been working for a long, long time. So it was awesome, and uh, we're gonna—you'll be spared of this—but in a couple <laughs> weeks, Sean and I record, and we're gonna do kind of reminisce on some uh, themes and stories from fourteener adventures over the years. So, <laughs> well, but you've heard, you've heard all of those, so you'll be. I've free heard some of them. Yeah. yeah, I've been on a few of them. So that was yesterday, and um, yeah, so. We're That's pretty, why uh, that makes sense. Sean wasn't returning my calls. He was out of service. So yes. Yes, he was. I, I forgive him. Indeed. The only <laughs> thing I regret is that we were so cold uh, at the summit. It was really windy and we're holding this thing down. There's just rocks. We're kind of all gathered around it, just trying to like, you don't want hosts flying away and things. It was really intense. Um, but we're all bundled in and we took a photo, but Sean and I look like I was too old for Teletubbies, but I think this is what Teletubbies <laughs> kind of look like because we have these big blue puffies on and then these weird kind of vestments. And so the, this is supposed to be this like epic moment and we look like idiots, but uh, <laughs> so God has a sense of humor. So um, anyways, though, I want to jump into the topic. We'll have more on 14ers to come uh, onto this kind of myriad of topics that we're going to somehow string right. together into a... Uh, um, Variations on a theme, I would say, but the the basic thing that I'm holding in my hand here is Christopher Dawson's The Crisis of Western Education. Mm. Are you familiar with this book? I'm aware of the book. It is on the reading list. It has not been read. Excellent. So you are teaching me. Everybody needs to put this on your to-read list at some point. I know that I'm always talking about books, but this I haven't read this one in about a decade, and I just came back to it and read it last week, and it's just blowing me away. Um, and it's not scary big. It's not scary big. Nope. It's a lot less scary than a bride adorned <laughs> modern uh, Mary Church perichoresis in the modern Catholic world. Uh, 150 pages. And he's a great writer. He's very clear. The Crisis of Western Education, Christopher Dawson. What's the point of this? Uh, well, we're in an educational emergency here. So this is very similar to Giussani, um, Augusta del Noche, some of the other people we've talked about. The book is in three parts. Uh, History of Liberal Education in the West. So it lays out what is uh, the liberal arts? What is the, qu- the quote-unquote classical education? Part two, he says, uh, what is the situation of the Christian education in the modern world? And then part three, Western man and the technological order. It's never too early to start thinking about the questions of education, uh, especially as you're stepping into your vocation or your family or your friends. Um, it's becoming absolutely essential that we um, choose schools, that we do the right thing, and that we, we relocate education within the larger context of what we could call humanism, but especially Christian humanism, which is evangelization. All right. So those are all the many, many kind of pieces that we're going to come back to. But let's go. Uh, and let me ask you this question to kind of kick off this conversation. So settle that aside. And, <laughs> and we are going to talk about this book. But what is your policy on talking to people on airplanes? Oh, if they look interesting, I usually try and start a conversation. Uh, if they put their headphones in immediately, I usually just do the same. Uh, if somebody wants to start a conversation with me, totally open. Um, I like it. I'm not always the most, as you'd think I'd be more gregarious, but sometimes I'm kind of like, mm, 
if this gets off on a bad foot, we got three more hours. That's exactly <laughs> how I feel. I love talking to people, but if I don't have an exit plan, exit route, yeah, I, I, I really don't do it. I usually just bury my head in a book. Um, you know, a quick hello to somebody or something, but once you go for it, the airplane conversation, you are committed. Yeah. And I haven't figured out the, how do you exit out of a conversation uh, and then sit next to the person forever, however long, you know, and just uh, that feels for me very uncomfortable. I think the only safe way is, you know what, I'm pretty tired. I think I'm going to take a nap because you can't <laughs> stay awake because then it's just awkward. I remember a transatlantic flight um, where I sat next to this Australian guy and we started talking right away and we had the most intense conversation for like three hours, like to the depths. <laughs> it was so intense. It was so crazy. He's pouring his heart out. And then we ran out of things to talk about. Five more hours. And we had five hours. (laughs) It was so, I was actually reading Dawson. I remember that because I was so uncomfortable. And I think that I feel I have an excessively heightened sense of social awareness for social awkwardness. I'm probably more awkward than I think, but I definitely, it's definitely a heightened sense for that. And I'm not comfortable in that. I'd like to work at that. Um, But anyways, the point of this is I don't like talking to people on airplanes. (laughs) I'm flying back from Chicago on Saturday, and uh, I'm just reading, reading my Dawson, doing my thing, uh, and in clerics, you know, like usual. Uh, and uh, girl across the way says, "Hey, are you a priest?" And I was like, "Yep." And she's like, "Oh, cool, I'm Catholic." And we start chatting, talk the whole way, <laughs> talk to her the whole. Pl- it was amazing. It was a very kind of uh, it redeemed my hope in airplane conversations. <laughs> But it was very easy to talk to her. Um, and we ended up having this very, very long conversation about many, many things. It probably annoyed everybody around us. Um, she was talking across the aisle. We were across <laughs> the aisle. Talked for like three hours. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. And I was like, well, it is possible. It is actually possible to have a substantial conversation with somebody on an airplane. It's very nerve-wracking, but it was, uh, it was very enjoyable. Um, so we hit a number of different kind of topics. We did talk about the faith extensively. And I think that this is an interesting kind of study and profile around uh, some of the things that I'm thinking about today that I want to go into. Um, Catholic dermatologist. She's about your age. Um, And so she was giving me the business about not wearing sunscreen enough, which is what they do. (laughs) She said every day. I was like, every day. She's like, every day you got to wear sunscreen. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that. But she's like, well, you're going to be ready for melanoma. I was like, okay. So <laughs> um, so you talk about sunscreen. We talked about 14ers. We talked about uh, just everything. And what was interesting was it helped me reevaluate several things. Number one, the world is not completely gone to hell. There are still like good people out there who are having conversions, who are thinking about God. Um, because I read Dawson. Any book that has the word crisis in it, I've probably read it, and uh, and it's uh, it, it it doesn't leave you the most kind of edified. It's true, but he's talking, he's breaking down what does it look like to live in a technological culture where modern liberalism is collapsing and we're falling into collectivism. And I look around the plane, and everybody's doing what? Scrolling mindlessly through Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And I, I just despair of that, you yeah. know? And I really did on that that flight, and then all of a sudden a human experience happens and you're like, wow, God is actually working. So I'll stop there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Two, your second movement was you're totally rethinking your use of sunscreen. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) I did put it on. I felt guilt. I had a good guilt trip yesterday on the floor. I'm thinking of a flight I had maybe a year or two ago. Um, Maybe I told you this, but the guy sitting next to me, 
had his tablet open watching some Netflix show with his earpods in. And then he had on his phone multiple different games that he was cycling through playing. And the entire time his leg was like bouncing, like restless. Mm. And so I don't know if it was restlessness, anxiety, flight, whatever, but there was just this sense of like needing to drown everything, medicate everything out. And then like every so often he'd kind of like look back behind up and down the aisle. He was just very, so just a lot of maybe anxious energy or just uh, undirected energy. And he just needed to have this constant stream of distraction and intake. And I was just, I was really struck because me and the guy next to me were, you know, just reading a book the whole time. And it was a very stark, I just kind of looked left and right and very different experiences. Um, And I, yeah, I don't think everybody's like that, but a lot of us very just in that, I don't know, distracted, detached, um, non-human experience world. Yeah, totally. And I get sucked into it. You know, you find yourself on the plane watching the movie next to you or, you know, just the the intensity of screens and the flight out to Chicago. There was this family and these kids and it was just very typical. Like the kids are on the screen, but they're just frenetic and crazy. And um, so kind of just like, yeah, like you're saying, just just stimulated constantly. It's just this like constant, constant stimulation and everybody's doing it all around you. And you're just trying to focus and look at something and, and think about something. Um, and it's, it's just, I don't know. There's something about the proximity of sitting on airplanes and with all the screens now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, we, we try, we really work to limit screens in our life. We do that as companions. Yeah. Um, we, we can't avoid it completely, but somebody was just telling me about a flight or I, I don't know, this might've been a podcast or somebody somewhere was, I overheard talking about being on a flight and they were getting, people were getting in trouble, not trouble, but being told by the, the flight attendants to close the windows because the light coming in from the windows could cause glare on other people's devices. Oh yeah. And they want to, you know, let other people have their, and yeah. like, I want to look out and see what's below me. You know, I want to yeah. see if there's mountains or the ocean or whatever. And that was kind of striking to me. Yeah. I, I actually saw that on a flight recently. So, so anyways, this is uh, you know, this, this ties in a number of things for me. Number one, the phenomenon of what we call the nuns that we're always talking about. What is happening with this fastest growing generation? Um, and then number two, how do we evangelize them? And then number three, what does education have to do with, with all of this? You know, maybe that's the three questions that in light of the dermatologist on the airplane, it sounds like a Seinfeld episode, doesn't it? <laughs> so number one, the phenomenon of the nuns. I think that uh, N-O-N-E, fastest growing kind of whatever uh, kind of sociological or demographic group in the United States. What's happening there? Well, I typically go back to that book, Mass Exodus, um, by Stephen Bolivant. Heard a different perspective over the weekend from the Kara Institute, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. And uh, there's this Jesuit up there uh, being all funny and as, as they are. Um, but he's giving the data. And he's like, yeah, 86 million baptized Catholics in the United States. Um, and then he starts breaking down practice, you know, and he's got different, he's got a different way of putting it. And he says the retention rate is actually much higher than other religion, other religions, other denominations, but nonetheless, there is this phenomenon of the nun N O N E. And I've talked about this. I think there's a, a whole podcast on this, so I don't want to go into it too long, but here was uh, the two things that I found interesting. Number one, he said the the phenomenon of the nun N O N E is, um, not necessarily that they're agnostic. We like to think 
if somebody checks, okay, you grew up Catholic, you go to whatever crappy, you know, Catholic high school, and then you go to whatever crappy Catholic college, and then you just, you're like, you know, living down at Wrigley in Chicago, and you're doing your thing, whatever, and you get the demographic, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to be Catholic anymore. None. He's like, it's not that simple. And so when we say 34% of Catholics in the United States disaffiliate from the church, uh, which is what Bolivant has how he kind of lays it out. He's like, it's not that clear. A lot of times it's not a, a declassifying oneself as being Catholic. It's just, I don't really know where I am in relationship to the church. And that was my experience talking to the dermatologist was just like, definitely a Catholic, um, but kind of in Wash Park and hanging out and doing different things and just kind of, but hasn't been able to kind of find the Catholic community um, so to speak, and the connection point. Um, and that, that for me is, that was like very interesting because I was like, yeah, that's, that's part of the, the challenge at, that we need to do a better job of responding to is actually creating that touch point. But I think sometimes we look at the, at least I do, I look at the, the rise of the nun and I think, and, and this dermatologist wasn't a nun, she's Catholic, but I look at that as a thing and I think to myself, well, they're all just gone. They're all just kind of automatons on on, Inst- on Instagram now, and uh, they're just gone. And it's like, no, they're they're really not. Um, so there still is a deep sense of the questions of God at work. And then the second thing he said from the study, and then I'll shut up for a second, is he said they oftentimes their connection point to the church is not the Sunday Mass practice. So you can't look at okay, what is the retention rate of Catholics based on mass practice? The majority of young Catholics, young millennials, their connection point was actually some other kind of group. So it's this Bible study, or it's this young adult group, or it's this kind of social work, or it's this kind of thing. So we can get them to Sunday Mass, but you can't work backwards. And sometimes it's like we go to Sunday Mass, and then we cherry-pick the most kind of the people that are around the most to do the things. And then this is how all the things get done. And it's like we're working backwards, and that's where we're, we're literally missing a generation. Yeah. Okay. Pause. Go ahead. Well, I just, it, it reminds me of when we were talking with uh, Dr. Chap, and he mentioned, you know, a lot of the wayward or drifting Catholics, uh, a lot of them aren't, haven't made this strict break. Right. And even like the idea that, you know, they were um, raised Catholic. I think I, I meet more people who tell me like, oh, I was raised Catholic. And it's usually not hyper combative or like, and I know better now. And I right. mean, but it's just kind of like, Oh, I was raised Catholic. Um, and there's a certain affinity for it, appreciation for it. And I think what chap pointed out was they kind of like the security of knowing it's there, even if they're not hyper engaged in it. Um, so just to kind of situate us a little bit more in the, the demographic reality, yeah. um, to, to this point of, well, they might not be attending Sunday mass. They might not really have too much practice, but there's something that's been instilled uh, that allows them to continue um, thinking, knowing that it's there, that the church is there. God probably exists. God probably in some degree cares or loves them. They're also probably a little bit of a, well, I don't know if this God is really okay with the way I'm living my life. Maybe there's a fear. I don't know, but there's, it's a much broader, less black and white um, binary in or out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, yeah, the, the Ernst fall, the decisional uh, moment arising out of crisis where I have to decide. Um, that, is not, that is not present in the hearts of many people. Mm-hmm. And so we just can't presume that they're all just 
Because yeah. like the diehard, even the new atheism thing uh, of Christopher Hitchens and these guys, that it's like that was a that was in vogue twenty years ago, and it's really not even yeah. a thing. Like people are, it's almost like it feels po- like post agnostic. Not to put post in front of everything, but it feels <laughs> like that in the sense of like we're just in this cultural malaise of um, we're, we're we just have all these deep desires in the heart, and but like people are not even it's not even registering and somehow we have to just reawaken the consciousness, the the spiritual consciousness of a person yeah. that, and that I think is a step that we miss in evangelization. Mm-hmm. Well, we miss it and it's hard to bring, bring up and bring out of people because everything's kind of set and comfortable and things are good. There's no real, no real crisis in our societies. We're starting to see more and more arising. Um, but in your, does it really touch your daily life? Most people are still waking up, going to work, right. kind of, yeah, it's tough. Maybe I'm struggling to get by a bit, but generally speaking, life's pretty good. And so it's the same, the, the phenomena of Poland, where the younger people now with kind of an increased secularism, a greater security of life, um, they're drifting away from the faith in numbers that you didn't see under the communist rule, right. where they held on to it because right. it was... There was identity, there was, there was purpose, and there was um, salvation within it, uh, unity within it. Whereas now it's kind of like, well, it's, it's kind of a good among other goods. And so they're forcing that is, yeah, I don't know, I was having a conversation with a, a priest, another priest friend of mine. I just brought it up. I said, you know, if we enter this crisis moment of the church and all of the, we lose our you know, tax-exempt status and we lose donors and the church becomes super poor again and we start losing... Um, you know, buildings. We don't have the parishes and the rectories. And, you know, now we're living more in like a clandestine underground type church environment. I said, I really am fascinated. Who would the saints be that arise? Because I think a lot of the people who seem pretty nominal or disengaged might become the shining stars. And those who are kind of like really comfortable and almost uh, famous within the arena of Catholicism today might really struggle yeah. in that. And until that moment happens, we don't know. I don't know how I respond in that. I don't know if I crumble. You know, the, the priests in Mexico when the church became uh, criminal uh, to the government and the priests were supposed to recant, stop being priests, get married. Some did. Others went on to, you know, die by firing squad because they kept ministering. I don't know which one I'll be. I know which one I hope to be. But until that happens, I don't know. And you have to think about, I mean, think about Graham Greene's power and the glory here of like, not the the great one. (laughs) Yeah. There's something about the, just because we check all the boxes doesn't mean that we, we have the requisite kind of heroic virtue it's going to take to, to pass through that moment. Um, And I just find that in my own life and in the, in the church, it's just, it's tempting to sensationalize everything to be like, everything has gone to hell. It's all over. And it's like, things are really bad. I don't know if optimism is really the the thing at work, um, but there's a kind of sobriety that happens with kind of thinking th- deeply on things, but also like within perspective of like, there's actually God working in yeah. the midst of this. Like the fact that modernity is collapsing means that the bourgeois dimension of the Christian life is collapsing and that it's becoming a persecuted minority persecuted primarily by the the kind of cold indifference of the of the secular world um which can't even fathom the fact that you a young man uh, uh, well you, you know not, not as, so not as young as used to be but <laughs> would actually 
promise uh, cel- a life of celibacy as you did, and then uh, and think that that maybe that's actually healthy and it's not some kind of just crazy repressed Freudian thing that you're doing. So, yeah. anyways, yeah, I think uh, just touching back to me and Father Sean's podcast last one, we talked about kind of the persecution of the the church in the East, Japan, Korea. Um, there is a sense of yeah, I like it's it's a cold indifferentism. It's a you don't really care. You can be a minority, whatever, but you're clearly um, not important in the mind, which is a weird because it's not it's not an explicit act of persecution. It's almost a, it's a it's a nefarious tactic of of the enemy, the evil one. To he's like yeah, attacking the church head on usually doesn't work. Yeah, if I can get people to just kind of forget about it, that might be a better tactic. And I think we're seeing that. So. That's point one. Point two, going back to our last podcast, I guess six weeks ago now with Guardini, when he mentions the Christian hope comes when you do not know your entire motivation. You do not know the exact, uh, you know, operation of events after you make an action or a choice or act uh, in any way. You don't know. You might intend it for really good and you don't know exactly how it's going to play out because, you make a decision, you put it into play, and the world just kind of has its way of changing things. She says, if you can't know the ultimate end of your action, and you don't even know the total sum of your intentions and motivations, how can you act? How can you have any faith or hope to act? And he says, that's exactly where Christian hope comes in, that you still continue to act, trusting that God is the one who sees it all and is actually the grand artist in play. And so as Christians, even though we don't understand everything that's going on right now, we don't understand everything inside ourselves, and we don't understand how our actions are going to play out, we still act in good faith, seeking to love the Lord, seeking to glorify Him. Um, and we fail at times, but we trust that God's got it. And that, he said, is Christian hope, which makes it, this isn't some blind optimism, a kind of a progressive optimism where everything's just getting better. Right. It's like, well, God's got it. God's got a plan. His providence rules. So I have Christian hope that I can continue acting and working in this. But I'm not thinking like, oh, tomorrow's absolutely going to be better than yesterday. Right. right. I think it's right on. Um, I'm not looking at the time. I better keep, keep us moving here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's move to point two here of our kind of loosely constructed um, uh, framework. So if point one was uh, what exactly is happening with these postmodern nuns uh, and then the second question I have is, well, then what does that mean for evangelization? And I want to, I want to start thinking about evangelization as a cultural project, as rebuilding culture, because faith cannot exist in the vacuum of culture. Mm-hmm. Culture is a shared way of life. Uh, that's what, that's what culture is. Uh, you can't just, we can't live this privatized kind of atomized Christian existence. And we just think we can because we're all modern liberals. Uh, and so, um, before getting into that and going into the culture question, and this is just reading Dawson a lot, um, he does have one line that speaks about nuns. Now, he wrote this in 1961, which is really interesting uh, to think about that. 1961. So, Second Vatican Council is going on. The world has not blown up yet. It's not Woodstock <laughs> yet, but we're still living in kind of the, post, the post-war era, and everything looks great, right? Churches are full. Family life is intact. Suburban America on the rise. Everything's fine. And this is what he says. He says, The real threat to Christianity and also to the future of Western culture is not the rational hostility of a determined minority, but the existence of a great mass of opinion which is not anti-religious, but sub-religious. 
so that it is no longer conscious of any spiritual need for Christianity to fulfill. Boom. Yeah. That is a mic drop. So let me say that again. The real threat to Christianity is not the rational hostility of a determined minority. So it's not the Christopher Hitchens, the, the new atheist movement. This is not the real threat. Uh, it's the existence of a great mass of opinion, which is not anti-religious, but sub-religious. No longer conscious of any spiritual need for Christianity to fulfill. What we're putting out of our Catholic school system, and by sacramentalizing all these non-verts, as I always am talking about it, is a sub-religious character, which means that there's a lack of Christian consciousness of the need for redemption. Yeah, it's another, um, I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about with uh, what's happening in Poland to some degree, has happened in the West for quite some time. Um, And it's also just this practical atheism that we can live by, where it's, it's like, yeah, I've got the faith, but really... I don't really believe Jesus does these miracle things. Um, my life's pretty good. I don't need quote unquote transformed by Christ. Uh, it's just, yeah. And it's not necessary. So we can keep some of the practices. We can have our nice Christmas dinners and, and, you know, our nativity scenes and it's nice. It's sentimental and it's family cultural, but it's not really dynamic or dramatic in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we see. And I think that's a temptation even uh, within us kind of priests day in, day out, just kind of serving. We can get into a bit of a, like, oh, I'm just doing the thing. I'm doing the thing. I'm faithful. I'm doing the thing. But it's like, man, what does Jesus really want to penetrate into our life and, like, explode with grace? Yeah. There's a kind of artificiality right now in our culture. And I wonder what separates us as different. So you go to your you work at Amazon web services and you're on your screen in your computer doing your thing. And then you go to the next thing and everything is kind of this. um, This is how he describes it. He says what he says. um, Western secularized culture is uh, it's basically sheltered from reality. Uh, And it, all it's doing is making for social conformity. He uses the example of a hothouse. Is that like a, Greenhouse, is that what he's referring to? Hothouse, is that a British thing? I don't I'd, know. I'd guess so. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> yeah. a sauna. So imagine a sauna. Um, man is sheltered from the direct impact of reality, but subjected to the growing pressure which makes for social conformity. Yeah, that'd be a greenhouse. He seldom has to think for himself or make vital decisions. His whole life is spent inside highly organized artificial units, factory, trade union, office, civil service, party, and his success or failure depends on his relations with the organization. If the church were one of these compulsory organizations, modern man would be religious. But since it is voluntary and makes demands on his spare time, it is felt to be superfluous and unnecessary. (laughs) That's profound. That hits. And so my question is... I have to go to my work. I have to go to my office. I have to do this. "Ah, I even have to go to the gym. Yeah. 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 I got to go to the gym. But church is optional. It's like, I just don't have time. (laughs) I just can't. I I can't seem to fit it in. Um, But you're, you're preoccupied with Poland in a good way. And so what do you think is at the source of this? What we're seeing here is, is a massive secularization of the young culture of, of Poland right now. Yeah, that's just, I think that's the most, uh, the prevalent kind of example of a shift where you have like a 98% Catholic population. And now in one generation, there's a lot of influx from the rest of Europe and a lot of the youth are kind of, who, who grew up not knowing um, I guess the, the difficulties, the challenges Poland went through, uh, the era of John Paul II. Um, there's some vestiges of memory and Polish identity there, but more so it's like, wow, we have so much, quote, opportunity in our lives uh, that we've never seen before. And so the secularization of the world, the consumerism 
is rising. Um, and I, yeah, faith no longer seems essential. It's, it's exactly what you described here is, um, non-essential extra time. And they're like, well, it's more fun things to do. Yeah. I think that the, the scary thing in that is that Poland is moving towards what happened in Holland, Quebec, and Ireland in the last several decades, which is the most aggressive secularization of the most classically highly quote unquote Catholic areas. And I think the breakdown happens sadly if the church is just too wedded to the political authority, which it has been, and it's just it's just decimating it. What has to happen instead is that we have to acknowledge that there's the spiritual vacuum in modern culture that we have to respond to it. And he says, this is just another line from Dawson. He says, what is vital is to recover the moral and spiritual foundations on which the lives of both the individual and culture depend. To bring home to the average man that religion is not a pious fiction, which has nothing to do with the facts of life, but that it is concerned with realities and that it is in fact the pathway to reality and the law of life. This is no easy task since a completely secularized culture is a world of make-believe in which the figures of the cinema and cartoon strip add Snapchat in their Instagram, whatever, <laughs> appear more real than the figures of the gospel. So we have a massive cultural project before us, which is paradoxically happening as Christendom is collapsing. Poland is collapsing. Like this is the end of classical Christian forms of life. But it doesn't mean we can just jettison that and that we don't have to pull together in community as Christians and say, how are we going to actually offer something different to the dermatologist on the airplane? Instead of, yeah, you know, you really should just go to mass, moralism. Yeah. Or, yeah, we don't actually have anything to offer because the gym that you go to has a better community and, and we're just never going to be able to compete with that. Or, yeah, you know, we're an open and inclusive community and we've basically watered down and secularized our own content to make you feel like you don't have to make a decision or any change to your life. It's like, can we stop doing all of those things, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I just, it's, it's fascinating too because in the grand sweep of history, we are we're in this 100, 150-year um, kind of degradation that we're seeing. It's just, it keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps getting farther. And you're like, it's got to turn sometime. And it's, we're, no, we're just more. But doing some research for the paper for your class, I was reading up on Evelyn Waugh's conversion. And one of the things he brings up is his conversion to Catholicism is actually from a, a profound reflection on civilization. And he sees kind of this crisis of civilization, and he sees how the church in the West actually built the civilization that's now crumbling. And he says, you know, I want, I actually want to rebuild that civilization. And so what he's kind of pointing at is we're talking a lot about how we're outside of Christendom and we're heading into an apostolic era. But when we're in apostolic era, what was the goal of the apostolic era? To go to all nations, right. proclaiming the gospel, baptizing them, making them Christians, building what Augustine would say is the city of God, which is, if that actually succeeds, as it did, we enter into another phase of Christendom because everybody becomes Catholic. So, like, our evangelization efforts is not just this kind of eternal evangelization where we're just throwing, you know, <laughs> spaghetti at a wall and hoping, you know, somebody might pick it up. Our, our evangelization, evangelization has an end, which is to bring... Uh, to bring people into faith, which transforms their life, which transforms how they live, which actually builds culture and builds a civilization 
And then we'd be in an era of Christendom. It wouldn't look like it did in the Middle Ages, but it would be another Christendom era, right? Does that make sense? Absolutely, and I love it. And I think that Dawson, Dawson is a really good corrective right now to this kind of apostolic mindset that gets reduced to kind of post-Christendom and that we're all free from. We hear some of this. Uh, you know, We hear some of this in the church, and we don't need to talk about it, um, but not in the companions, of course, because we've got everything figured out. Just joking. <laughs> um, but we hear this kind of, well, thank God it's not Christendom anymore because now people have to stand up and make decisions for their faith. The small minority, we're going to kind of rise and it's going to be the real thing. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but to your point, which is so good, but faith is ordered towards culture. Like it yeah. creates culture because it, it, it has to stay in life. Mm-hmm. That's where it lives in, 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 in community. And that's, that's what culture forms. It's funny. Look at the media. Look at the films, the dystopian future films. It's always this small minority that has the truth that's fighting to, to win, um, but they're like the heroes. And so if we want to be a hero, and that's the archetype of the hero now, well, then we actually need to perpetually be the underdog. And so we don't want Christendom because then we can just perpetually be that underdog fighting against the system or whatever. Um, but that's not the goal, right? It's because it's not about us. It's about God. And so striving for culture because we are evangelizing, because the gospel is being received in its beauty, in its power. And I think that's where sometimes we're in a moralism or a rationalism, expressing the faith in those categories instead of beauty and the power of the gospel. I had an interesting comment uh, after class, which ties into that for me. Um, First philosophy, introduction to theology, they're going to get the hammer on certain things. Um, and one of them is radical traditionalism. And uh, some of the guys, it's really hard for them, the way that I speak about it. And I also don't want to piss them off and pin them in the corner. And so I really appreciate some of these conversations. One of the guys had an interesting point to This is a guy who is more traditional, uh, but who's human and he's thoughtful. He says, there is something about the, the Latin mass thing, and not that we need to go into this today, that draws the kind of, um, this is the exceptional place but it's also countercultural. It's so countercultural to join this thing. Mm-hmm. This is only for like the Shia LaBeoufs of the world, like the super, just kind of, it's so much more kind of mysterious and esoteric in these things. And so it draws that kind of thing. And then, but it gets ostracized because it is kind of socially unacceptable. And then they get radicalized from that, from the pain of the mistreatment. And I thought mm-hmm. that was an interesting read. And I don't really want to talk about that um, today, but I thought <laughs> the traditional thing ties to this because that can be anything from I'm random, rando person number, you know, whatever, who walks into this church and is blown away by the beauty of, of this liturgy, of this ancient liturgy, all the way to like, um, I don't like who I am. I don't like the way the world is. So I'm going to recreate a culture fabricated from the 17th, 16th century and plop it into my world. And we're going to build that world and pretend like we're not living in this kind of postmodern technological world. So that that, brings that's us crazy. Yeah. to culture and truly building culture. What does that look like? I believe that's taking us to Christopher Dawson. True education. Good job. <laughs> Part, point three, and then we're wrapping this up. We're actually no, we're doing, no, we're doing okay. pretty good. We're doing okay. Um, Dawson thinks of enculturation, or excuse me, of education as enculturation. So the point of this project of this podcast is to say a very interesting conversation on an airplane made me reflect on three different things. Number one. What exactly is the typical person out there who is goodwill, but maybe not practicing? Number two, 
what is the uh, way that we reach them and, and the cultural aspect of evangelization. And now number three is, then how do we, in light of that, think of education? Because the point of this book is the crisis of Western education. Education was supposed to be doing something. It's not doing it anymore. That's why we're in crisis. So he's going to see religion, culture, and education as tied together. Three things. Religion is the heart of culture. Culture is in it, the essence of education, so to speak. So the last part of that is the part that we're probably least familiar with, because religion and culture, that makes sense. The word culture comes from cultus, which means the religion, right? Yeah, cult. The gathering group around exactly. a core uh, belief. Right. And so that's the heart of it is that we have this unified vision of a spiritual reality that manifests itself in our way of life. That's religion and culture. What is enculturate or what is the last part? Education. It's when you enculturate that, when you transmit that, when you hand that on to people that, and that's when that breaks down, we're, we're really in trouble. And in there is this book tells the whole story of how did we come to this place where the state basically said, uh, by the way, we're in charge now. And, we're doing all the education, and oh yeah, by the way, we're gonna. We might have some things to say about what they're gonna believe, because mm-hmm. this is go back to John Dewey and these other guys. This is the most powerful way to transform a culture, is by hijacking its educational system. And yeah. this is what the communists did. This is what liberal secularized democracy does. And the only thing holding holding strong is the is the the small few that are like, we actually want to create a culture where our families. Uh, live according to a set of moral and spiritual principles mm-hmm. that govern the vision that we have for reality and we want to transmit to our kids. That's why the question of which school they go to really matters. Yeah. What fascinates me on there is enculturation through education. We hear that contemporary, we think, oh, enculturation, bad. Um, but it's really, it's, it's neutral. It's a fact. Education enculturates. To what it's enculturating could be good or bad evil, virtuous. Um, One of the great lies of our education in the last 100, 200, 300 years was everything, all ideas are relatively neutral. And then you as the free thinking man, post enlightenment, you've cast off your tutelage of religion. Uh, You can think for yourself now. And so you look at this quote unquote marketplace of ideas and you let the best idea win you over because they're all just neutral. And so Marxism, uh, liberal democracy, you know, fascist democracy, uh, you know, dictatorship, uh, all these kind of are neutral ideas that you can fight over. Christianity is just another idea with Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, whatever it might be, all just ideas in the marketplace. And that's actually really a lie because nobody's ever actually made a claim that um, in their personal life that these are truly neutral, right? And so we're always, when we're educating, when we're making choice of educating, we're actually enculturating. And so schools are enculturating something. Yeah. And right now we're seeing this heightened chaos of the public schools and parents responding and reacting to it. Like, you know what? I was kind of fine with you teach, but like now this, that, the other thing, gender ideology, whatever, like people who aren't even you know, having this Catholic worldview background that we have, we're like, that doesn't seem right. I'm not comfortable with that. And we're seeing that, okay, in education, there is enculturation. They're not teaching some neutral, just as in Catholic schools. We might teach a broad survey of history of religions at some time, 
but in a Catholic school, we're teaching Catholicism. We're teaching the Catholic worldview and we're enculturating them into Catholic culture. Um, and we don't need to be apologetic for that. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said was right on and extremely profound, better than I could have said it. And so, um, everybody is being enculturated in the sense that we're being drawn into culture. But, but the weird thing about modernity is there's this religious vacuum in the modern culture. So Amazon, Disney, Snapchat, whoever is, is forming the culture, it's not really a culture. It's really an anti-culture. That's what Guardini would call it. This is an anti-culture that we're living in. And it, it's not to say, to talk bad about it, so there's nothing good in it. It's just to say, because it's, the reason it's an anti-culture is not because there's not good stuff in there. If there wasn't good truth, good, and beauty, people wouldn't be drawn to it. It's an anti-culture because it's not spiritual. Technology has supplanted the spiritual realm. And I think that kind of fundamental materialism, which Christians have freaking sold out on, right? When we said that, yeah, okay, we can be bourgeois like everybody else. Material well-being, let's keep it comfortable. We'll send our kids to the nice schools. They can go to Jesuit School X, and then they can go to this, and then they'll get into Georgetown Law, and then whatever. And then now they're going to live a good life, and they're Catholic enough. At least they're normal, you know? (laughs) And you're just like, my God, this is just insane. And as you said, this is no longer happening because the whole principle that you could create this kind of neutral zone where everybody could kind of come together and be free thinking. That's a modern myth that doesn't exist. And what we're seeing is ideological takeover and somebody's teaching your kids. Somebody's teaching your kids and they're talking about X, Y, and Z and they're forming their minds. And do you, do you know what's happening? And I think parents are waking up to this and transgenderism is in some ways the match tossed on to the, the heap of just, all of the all of that kindling and dead wood that was ready to go and it's it's lightened baby yeah. and it's crazy i want to turn it back to christ who the can i say one oh, more dark sorry. thing before please, you do that because you're around you're around and i'll bring the light then you bring the light <laughs> let me just say the finish the quote from dawson here and then i will uh so this isn't dark actually this is beautiful in order to free the mind from its dependence on the conformist modern patterns of modern secular society well that is kind of dark let me say that again <laughs> We want to help people free their minds from the de- its dependence on the conformist patterns of modern secular society. It is necessary to view the cultural situation as a whole and to see the Christian way of life not as a number of isolated precepts imposed by ecclesiastical authority, but as a cosmos of spiritual relations, embracing heaven and earth and uniting the order of social and moral life with the order of divine grace. Christian culture is the Christian way of life. As the church is the extension of the incarnation, so Christian culture is the embodiment of Christianity. So I love this notion of the cosmos of spiritual relations, as that's what Christianity is. When I meet somebody on an airplane and they have a general openness and humility before the truth and maybe even a desire for God, I want to share, you want to share life with them. You want to draw them into the cosmos of spiritual relations that you and I have and that other people have that is in Christ. And that that for me is the is what enculturation is. It's not so much the teaching of these things, but it's about sharing life and just whether that happens on a 14er or over a cup of coffee or in a Bible study, this is what this is what the project has to look like as we as we move forward into into this kind of new era in a postmodern world. Mm-hmm. Okay, to Christ. <laughs> uh, to Christ, Christ who from the beginning of the church was understood as Christ the teacher. Uh, he teaches through parables, through stories. His disciples, the apostles, follow as students. 
along the way, uh, the hodos in Mark along the way, um, always journeying along the path towards and with the teacher. And I think uh, one of the elements of commoditizing education is it's, it's transactional for a time. I put in XYZ, this amount of dollars, this amount of hours in the classroom, and I get something that says I'm able to do this work or that, whether I actually learned it or not. That's not really education. No. But that's what our system looks like. Right. Education is Christ the teacher, walking with the apostles, looking for opportunities to teach them in the day-to-day. And so this education, Christ the teacher, is opening up to him teaching us every day, seeing how he's speaking, seeing what he's doing, seeing what miracles he's affecting in lives, sharing those, actually being excited to say, you know what? I was actually transformed by the gospel today or by, you know, reading um, St. Paul or, you know, I prayed with somebody yesterday and, you know, this, this happened and being able to like joy, enter into the joy of the apostles. Like they come back from the 72 get sent out and they come back and they're just, they can't stop talking about all of the good things that happened when they went to the towns two by two, um, the goodness, the miracles. And so part of it, we see what this, the church doesn't seem super powerful because we don't see this miracle happening or, you know, it's like, well, what's the point? You know, I've got modern technology. I don't need all these things, but to, to see, especially the miracles, the inner transformations, um, the freedoms that can happen through prayer. Um, Jesus saying some of these, some of these demons can only be cast out by prayer. So praying with people, actually being bold enough to, to invite people into prayer. This is the daily on the way journeying that helps us interpret life because the teacher, the master, Jesus is the one who's interpreting it. Um, and so I just, I have, I have hope for that, but I think that's where we go in evangelization. It's not, it's not top down. Let's get the policies in. It's not, <laughs> but are we going to invest in being on the way? And that's why I think Catholic education, super important, but I think we need to rethink how we do it. Um, if this, uh, kind of random podcast provided anything, it was to try and resituate the question of education because we go into our education box and we talk about education and then we go, but it's, it's, it's been separated from life. I love what you said about Christ. I also am thinking of a really beautiful homily we heard today uh, from Deacon Jesus um, where the two of the disciples are sent to prepare uh, for the coming of Christ. And, but he's already set his face towards Jerusalem. Mm. So he sends them to be rejected. Yeah. And, and you say to yourself, Oh, what is this? What does this have to do with anything? Or like, (laughs) Why would Jesus do that? Because the, the, the structure, the pattern of the Christian life is cruciform. So it is, we have to become cruciform. The church needs to manifest her cruciform modeling and her origins uh, in light of it if she wants to radiate Christ in the world. Sometimes that means being rejected yeah. by, by an increasingly secularized culture. And so um, these, all of these questions get kind of tied together in the question of uh, education, but in light of evangelization, um, and about just kind of saying, where are we at right now? Where do we find ourselves? Where do you find yourself on the plane, at the grocery store, in your neighborhood, in your family? What are the joys uh, of seeing Christ at work? What are the, the crosses of feeling rejected, of feeling just like totally blown off, the cold indifference of a secularized culture? All of these things kind of get tied in together uh, under the great hope, which is Christ, as you're saying. And, and when we pray, this is always restored in us. We try and do it on our own. We're toast. Amen.
Amen. And read Christopher Dawson, all you people. So, <laughs> shout outs. Well, I, I was going to say um, this will be the 600th episode, but it will I think it not, is, isn't it? Well, we rap, we had talked about throwing raps in there. Rap and Father Michael Lachlan are going to come into town. So Are they going to record before this one's released? Yeah, we'll see. Know. It might be. So, anyways. This, this is 600, hey, or 601. Nice yeah. work on the uh, the previous 600, boys, either way. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll see if they get that. It's, this might be coming out for number 600, but um, I don't have any particular shout-outs other than to our very own Father Sean Conroy and Casey Van Pelt and Steve Saya, all who finished the 14ers and did it over a lot of years. Um, Steve and Casey flew in at 11.40 on Sunday night, got in their cars, picked up their stuff, drove to the trailhead, started hiking, met us at 6.00, Hiked the entire day. <laughs> Climbed the whole mountain. Wow. These guys are absolute Please. freaks. So they did a great job. And it was a beautiful finish to uh, a, a great journey together on the trail. So I've got three shout outs. Uh, the first two, my friend Evan Olson and Jared Fisher, both separately uh, getting married. Not De- to each other. Not to each other. Okay. Uh, depending on if this is 600 or 601, they just got married last week or they're about to get married this weekend. Depending on when you're listening, uh, but shout out to them. Uh, one good friend from college, one from kind of post college Denver time. So awesome. Second shout out, my good friend from college, John Paul von Arks, just released a beautiful music video for his song called "He's Different," honoring his younger brother Sam, who has Down syndrome. And the song is "He's Different," but not in the ways you might think. He's different because he's so present and he's so uh-huh. loving and joyful. And so he's kind of just trying to highlight uh, through this song the joy and the difference of his brother who has Down syndrome and how he loves him and uh, appreciates how he's different, teaches him how to be present, how to be more human. Um, so it's a beautiful, beautiful song, beautiful music video. He's different. John Paul Von Arks. You should check it out. Um, I guess this October, he just released it because this October is, or every October is Down Syndrome Awareness Day or month. So I want to shout him out. It's awesome. Um, Y'all should check it out. Um, Very good. Yeah, we'll check that out. I'd like to do an anti-shout out to Fiji Water. There is nothing special about this water. (laughs) The price. The price is special. This is the bougie stuff we find in (laughs) Father Brian Larkin's rectory where we're recording. There's not, this tastes... Absolutely like water. There's nothing to this. I don't, this was always the biggest thing, Fiji water. Natu- I will make a claim. Oh, it's artesian. That's it why. is artesian. Oh, yeah. I think Whatever most water tastes the same except for Arrowhead, which is definitely the worst. <laughs> yeah, okay, good point. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thanks for listening. We made it to 600 uh, or 601, uh, but we're grateful for everybody listening, and we hope that you had a blessed uh, feast of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, one of our all-time favorites on October 4th, and that you are enjoying a beautiful autumn catholicstuffpodcast at gmail.com we love hearing from you check us out on instagram and facebook and we will see you next week